Hey, 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 what's up, everybody? This is Lindsay Lerner, and you're listening to The Cost of the Status Quo. More people than ever are questioning why they do what they do and forging their own path. And on this show, I sit down with these entrepreneurs, trailblazers, creatives, and overall awesome beings to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the overall tips and tricks they're using so that the rest of us can do the same. This is The Cost of the Status Quo. Hey, hey, welcome to The Cost of the Status Quo. Today we are here with Annabeth Moyer-Bell. Annabeth is known for doing drama therapy and playwriting. She has practiced and taught drama therapy nationally and internationally. Annabeth specializes in treating trauma, grief, and addiction. In her professional world, she is the executive director of Second Act, a national nonprofit with the mission to change the way people and communities respond to the impact of substance use. As a proud member of the recovery community, Annabeth is here today to discuss all of that and more. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. It would mean the world to me if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed this. Welcome, Annabeth. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. Yeah, of course. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) So happy you're here. So take us back. Where in the world did you grow up? I grew up in South Kingstown, Rhode Island, a small town in a small state. And uh, yeah, we grew up pretty close to the beach. I remember bicycling to the beach in the summertime, Narragansett. And I lived on top of a really big hill, which in the 90s, when we used to get a lot of snow, they would shut down the hill because it was too dangerous to drive down. And we would ski or sled or snowboard down the hill, which was (laughs) a highlight of my childhood. That's amazing. Yeah. What was your family like? You know, like normal-ish, but also really interesting, I guess. We are not true Rhode Islanders. You know, Rhode Islanders, you have to be born in Rhode Island. And sometimes I feel like like your grandmother and great-grandmother had to be born there to claim Rhode Island as, as where you're from. So my mother is originally from the Midwest, but her family really settled out in California. And my father's from the South. And they both were in book publishing. They met in New York City, working in book book publishing during kind of the height of the printed word in the 80s. And my mother was a poet. My father did all the jacket designs of all the books. So they were really creative. And I have a little brother named Niall, who is also has an incredible imagination. So my house was very creative, very playful. My parents, all of their friends were sculptors and writers and politicians like Noam Chomsky. So our house was filled with a lot of, yeah, a lot of interesting people and a lot of interesting conversations as a kid. When you were a kid, were there any sort of ideas or expectations of what you would end up doing? There weren't a lot, actually, because both of my parents came from households where there were very clear expectations my father was the only child and you know was born in 1945 in southern texas and so you did things a certain way his father was a veterinarian his mother was a stay-at-home mom and he was expected to go to school to get a job to get married to have children and that was like kind of your life and you did it you know at age 21 or whatever when you graduated school so that's what he did And then he quickly realized, oh, no, (laughs) this is not exactly what I want to do. And I don't want to be stuck in Texas forever. And so he ended up going on his own journey across the United States, 
selling books out of VW van in the like 60, late 60s and 70s and just, yeah, looking for himself. And then my mom came from a super academic family. My grandfather and grandmother met at Harvard when it was hard, Harvard and Ratcliffe. And they, my grandfather had two master's degrees, a juris doctorate and a PhD. And I'm like, grandpa, how is anybody ever supposed to live up to that expectation of academia? So yeah, so she grew up in a, in a really seriously academic environment. He taught at UC Berkeley and Stanford. So they both had pushed back. My mother did end up getting a master's in poetry and she sold jewelry on the wharf in San Francisco in the early 70s. So they both had these like really wild times after they went to school to figure out who they were. There was a lot of support and energy and intention around what was interesting to me and what I wanted to engage with or how I, you know how I wanted to engage with the world and a lot of encouragement around whatever that may be whether it was gymnastics or theater or volunteering but yeah there wasn't there wasn't a lot of pressure put on like what the end goal of those things were which was really nice thank god <laughs> yeah did you recognize that at the time or was it just that was the environment that you were in and so that was your life and that was great i think that was the environment and because my parents all of their friends were also creatives that was also enforced by everybody else who was around us too that sounds like so much so, fun <laughs> yeah i'm really really <laughs> grateful <laughs> i'm really grateful yeah when when did you first decide to get involved in the theater when i was really really little i actually started modeling in new york city when i was 3 and I kept modeling when we moved from New York to Rhode Island, but I don't think it was interesting enough for me. So then I moved to theater and my first play was Charlotte's Web. I think I was six or seven years old. I was on stage for all of one minute. I was a baby spider and I just held hands in a row of baby spiders and we just walked across the stage at the end of the play and that was it. I didn't do anything else. I didn't speak, I didn't dance, I didn't sing. I just walked from one side to the other. But yeah, I, I got into theater really, really young and fell completely in love with it and was in our local children's theater and did you know performances throughout the season and then did summer stock and went to acting school and. I did dance classes and singing classes and e I mean, every possible thing you could think to do. Right. Yeah. Wow. And did you, yeah. did you always know that you were going to be involved in the arts or it was just having that support system that allowed you to be able to navigate more creative endeavors? I think intuitively it always felt like the right place for me. I've always been a really deeply feeling and sensitive person. And I knew that the theater was somewhere where other people like me existed. So I didn't feel so weird and alone. And actors, because we're getting into characters and performing lots of different emotions and scenarios and relationships and all of that kind of thing, we're not afraid to dive in and 
talk about those scary things and feelings. So yeah, I think intuitively I knew that it felt like the right place and, and it was fun and I loved it. And it was a, I could be creative and I could be silly and play. And I always had a community that I felt connected to. So that's definitely important. And then from Rhode Island, you decide to go back to New York because New York is the place for theater or was there something else that, that pulled you there? There was a big chunk of time in between. So when I turned right, when I turned 20, I actually decided to move to the Bay area, which is where my, you know, my grandparents lived and my aunt lived and my cousin at the time lived and my, you know, my mom grew up in Berkeley. And so I had been going there since a little, I was a little kid and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to be in Rhode Island anymore. And I didn't want to be in a big city like New York City. And I wanted to be as far away, I think, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I didn't want to go to Hawaii or Alaska, but I wanted to get, you know, as far away as I could. And so, yeah, so I moved to the Bay Area in 2008. I did end up deciding to come back to the East Coast for grad school. And that decision was one, because I got accepted into NYU, which was a school that I had wanted to go to since I was a little girl. My mom had taken me by the hand to Washington Square Park (laughs) to show me like the saxophonist and the people on the stage, you know, reciting Shakespeare. And she was like, you know, one day you could, you could be here. And so when I got into NYU. And what were you, what were you studying at NYU? I did a master's in drama therapy. What was the the catalyst that got you into drama therapy? I had decided to finish my bachelor's degree at a really small, super progressive, you know, kind of new agey school in San Francisco called the, the California Institute of Integral Studies. And it's one of the three schools in the nation that have drama therapy master's programs, the other being here in New York at NYU and then another one in Massachusetts. And yeah, so I I heard about drama therapy. I was stu- current like during that time I was studying method acting in a little hole in the wall studio in the Mission District in San Francisco and really getting back into what theater had helped bring out in me as a kid that feeling of of connection to others and like really deep, like diving into my emotions. And then I learned about drama therapy and I was like, oh my God, why didn't I think of this? Like, of course, this is perfect. You know, like you can help people and you can and you can use this creative outlet to do it. Helping people has always been a big part of my life. So I just started reading about it and peeked in on some classes at the school and then decided to to apply to grad school. So you finish up this program, you're still in New York. And is that then when you started your first nonprofit? Yeah, I, I kind of started it like before I graduated. My master's thesis was the first play I wrote and subsequent research about the play's impact on audiences while I was in my second year at NYU. I started, I had gotten a grant from NYU to perform this original piece and to survey audiences. And that spring, right before I graduated, 
a hospital was like, oh, we would love to use this as a teaching tool. How much does it cost? And I thought to myself, oh my God, people will pay for this. Amazing. (laughs) Cool. Uh, And then I thought to myself, okay, well, if they'll pay for this, probably somebody else will pay for this. And I I ended up getting a um, this article written about me and the, the play itself in the Boston Globe. And I had set up this email address so that I could get, you know, inquiries about the article there. And I got a f- like flooded inbox of people asking if they could bring the play to their, you know, recovery center, treatment center, hospital. And I was like, oh, I'll just start a nonprofit. That's not so hard, right? <laughs> And so that that first nonprofit was Coast, creating outreach about addiction support together. Yes. Heck of an acronym. Oh God. I like I made it up at two AM in the middle of writing another grad school paper. I didn't know <laughs> what I was doing. Sure. And then yeah. you also found out that starting a nonprofit is actually ridiculously difficult. So difficult. And it's still difficult now, six years later. But you know what though? If I knew how difficult it was, I may not have done it. I think my ignorance and naivete really served me in that moment. Definitely. And so what was the motivation behind your work? Why was that so important to you? When I first started grad school in the fall of 2014, I lost three friends from my hometown to drug-related deaths. and. I had previously, two years prior, I lost my ex-boyfriend to a heroin overdose. And I just, I was realizing that there was something really big happening. And then it wasn't confined to my community, my small community of South Kingstown, but that it was actually something larger happening across the nation. And, you know, I was grieving and I, and, you know, when you lose somebody to a drug overdose or a drug related death, it really complicates all of the stigma. And there's a lot of kind of silencing that happens. There's not a lot of clarity that families often don't give clarity around like what actually happened, rightfully so it's, it's for them to decide but it really complicates the grief process. And so I watched myself and my friend group go through that, which prolonged and, you know, really complicated the grief. And I also felt like there wasn't places to openly grieve. There weren't places to openly talk about all of the complicated feelings that came along with drug deaths. And, and there wasn't adequate information about what was available and what support was out there. And I kept just hearing these horrible narratives about drug users that really upset me because as somebody who has loved, does love drug users or people who are in recovery, I knew that it was detrimental to my loved ones. So I really wanted to change those narratives and to create places of of healing. And for me, it had always been theater. And so I, yeah, so I wrote a play and started using that as as kind of a medium to have that conversation and have characters that were relatable and lovable and really give the community a way to to have those hard conversations and also like reach out for help and right. resources. Yeah. And so what did that 
what did that look like? Whether it was the first couple of plays or a couple hundred plays later over the last six years that you've been running this nonprofit? Yeah, at first it looked like four actors and a director in a room and me. <laughs> sure. I knew that I wanted to bring in people who had experience with drug use or drug-related deaths or, you know, kind of the intersection of, of other mental health issues. And so I cast people, actors and directors that had that close personal experience because I was really wary of not portraying characters or a storyline that would further stigmatize drug users. And that, you know, we got in the rehearsal room. I was there for every rehearsal. You know, it was like, a regular rehearsal in that we were doing blocking and we had scripts and we were writing down the cues and, you know, and we were being silly and playful. And then there were other moments where somebody would make, you know, an actor or a director would make a connection between their own personal story and their character or another character in the play, or there was a line that they, you know, they had heard before in their living room or their kitchen. And we would stop and kind of process that together and have these really deep conversations about what it was like to, to love a drug user or to lose somebody. And that was really beautiful. And then we went out and, oh gosh, I drove to every single hundreds of performances. I <laughs> lugged the Tupperware full of all the costumes and props and the table. I had this huge plastic table that I would bring around everywhere and, you know, the microphones and, you know, I was not trained in any, you know, mics or lighting or whatever. And I, you know, I would stand behind the, like, you know, in the lighting booth, trying to tell them what I wanted to see, not having any language of, of that world. Um, and then, yeah, so they would perform and then we'd have a talk back at the end and we would spend 20 minutes with the audience answering questions and telling our own stories. We performed all over the state of Rhode Island and Massachusetts. We went down to New York and New Jersey and Philadelphia. And we performed in front of kids in high schools. We performed in front of 90 men inside of an inpatient treatment center, like way out in the you know boondocks of Rhode Island. We ended up going, Elizabeth Warren's office brought us down a few years ago and we got to perform in front of congressional staff in support of a bill that did get passed for the state of Massachusetts to expand adolescent treatment. And do you think that the biggest impact that you've been able to have is more of that, the educational component? And by using what you're most passionate about, it seems, as that vehicle and as that leveling of the the playing field between you and others about, again, another topic that you're so passionate about? Yeah, I think the biggest impact that we make, and it's internal and external, because, you know, what we call ourselves is a recovery-friendly organization. So that means we prioritize hiring people in recovery. And so our impact is internal and external. And I would say the, the biggest piece of our impact is really 
helping people feel not so alone and helping people identify who they are in the story. And then what action will help support a helpful outcome, whether that is I'm just a random churchgoer here at this church seeing this performance, and I've never actually come in contact with anybody who struggles with opioid use disorder, or I don't think I have. And now I'm going to leave this performance and I'm going to get trained in Narcan, or I'm going to join my prevention coalition, or somebody at a treatment center identifying, finally really being able to see their mom's point of view. And not ever being able to see their mom's point of view because they were living in their own experience of their own drug use, raising their hand at the end of the play and saying, oh my God, I did not realize my mom was struggling so much with me. I haven't talked to her in 10 years. I'm going to call her tomorrow. You know, And then internally watching our actors perform these roles over and over and learn things about themselves that they can apply to their own recovery journey is really, yeah really beautiful. Off of that, how have you been able to dig deeper internally? So I thought going into all of this, that my end goal was to make it so that nobody suffered the way that I had, that we prevented as many deaths as we could, that we got as many people into recovery as we could. That is, of course, one you know important to me still now but i have peeled back that understanding or desired kind of outcome and really focused in on how do we create a community or a society that treats drug users as people with dignity and respect and love, no matter what happens, no matter if they overdose 40 times, no matter if they find an you know abstinence-based treatment program and they stay sober for the rest of their life, no matter if they die tomorrow because of a recurrence of symptoms, or if they never want to recover. And we just make sure they have a clean needle and some water and some food And a place, somebody to check in with, you know, every few days. And that has been incredibly humbling. And and also, it doesn't set this expect, going back to expectation. The expectation then is not, okay, you're going to recover and you're going to do X, Y, and Z. And you're going to become a part of our community in the way that we want you to be. We're just there to say, I love you. And no matter what role you take in the community, you will be loved and you will be taken care of. And that is so radical. (laughs) Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Are there any specific habits or practices that assist you daily in being able to balance all of this work that you're doing and then all of the fun that you have and all of all of just everything that you're able able to do and have been able to do? Yes, it's been uh, fine tuning (laughs) over time. I will say in the beginning, starting a nonprofit, like every entrepreneur, I had zero boundaries and I, you know, had credit card debt. What are those? Wazoo. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Boundaries? Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) Haven't met you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I, I made a lot of mistakes, but I think just continuing to fine tune What are my boundaries? What and boundaries being what keeps me safe? It doesn't have to do with anybody else. 
what are the things that I'm going to do to allow myself to live in a way that really supports my health and well-being? And so, you know, things like making time commitments or boundaries around my day-to-day work or my, you know, the week rituals around letting go of work or closing work out for the week so that I can let go and be fully present in my weekend or in my vacation or whatever. Next activity. I think one of the biggest things that I've done that's been the most helpful is building up my support network. So I have therapy that I go to once a week. I have a wonderful therapist and I have health insurance, which makes that much easier, which I realize not everybody has access to. But I have therapy. I have a life coach and I meet with her every other week. I have a business coach and I meet with him every other week. And I have a bunch of advisors, colleagues, friends that either are in the nonprofit executive director realm or they're drama therapists or they're teachers or they're innovators that I try to make time to talk with, get coffee with, get lunch with. And and also having them making sure that I'm engaging with that support system um, in somewhat of a ritualistic way keeps me accountable, I think, too. And that's been one of the most helpful things, I think, in, in terms of my success. Speaking of success, when you had Coast, that has now merged, correct me if I'm wrong, has, not, has, has merged with Second Act. And so what was that process like to jump from having your own nonprofit and now into this huge merger and now being in charge of not, not one nonprofit, but two in a very emotionally and labor intensive space? The merger itself was really chaotic and difficult, especially because it happened during the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic is still going on, but, you know, it happened during 2021. And there were a lot of logistical things and there was a lot of work that I had to do around creating relationships and creating safety and feelings of safety and like people could trust me. But outside of that, as a nonprofit founder, moving out of the like founder mind and like this is my nonprofit that I started into a merged model of two nonprofits that are coming together with aligned missions and getting out from underneath that kind of role of being founder has been really, really helpful in helping me create a little bit of space. I think one of the things that it it helped do also is I'm now serving the mission of something that isn't my own thing. And that's so different than it being your own, like your, your baby, you know, you take things less personally, you're more collaborative, you're more willing to be flexible. And I've, I also have taken the burden of, of the entire organization off of my shoulders. It's not mine alone. The legacy and the impact is a collective vision and a collective 
a, like a cooperative um, thing. And yeah. And so, and I'm not, it's not just up to me, but it's up to us as a whole. And that has been really, really helpful to create some of the space I think that I needed because before the pandemic, I was, I was pretty burnt out. It's really hard. I mean, I think for anybody as a startup to get from startup to institutionalized, like it's so difficult. It's so hard. That shift, it feels almost impossible sometimes. It's also, I think it's really important to include, like you have been, to include nonprofits under that umbrella of startups. Because just because it's a nonprofit does not mean that it's not profitable in any, <laughs> in any realm. And it takes just as much work, if not more, <laughs> to go out and to fundraise and to be mission and vision and value driven over profit over anything else, which is, is really incredible. And now you've lived all over the place, traveled all over the world, and you've landed at the moment for the foreseeable future in Boston. What's next? What are we keeping an eye out for? Yeah, I I am here. I bought a place here and I have struggled for all of my adult life to figure out exactly where I wanted to be. And what I decided was, oh, I, I don't have to commit to forever. Even if I buy a place, even if I found an organization <laughs> and incorporate in a specific place, that doesn't mean I'm stuck there. Um, there's still flexibility. So I think once I reframed those, it allowed me the freedom to commit to things. And that's been really helpful. So I'm here in Boston. Our headquarters are here. We are, the administrative staff of the organization is very, is remote. So we're kind of all working all over the place. I am working on making sure that I never have to do a New England winter ever again. So that's really going to be helpful for my well-being. <laughs> and, you know, we're working towards a national nonprofit model. I don't know that I'll be with this organization for my entire life. I may be, I may not be, but I think also getting away from that founder mentality again, or the feeling like if I incorporate somewhere or if I commit to something, I'm stuck there forever, you know, going through the merger moving, buying a place has all taught me that I, I still have flexibility. I can still change course if I'd like to, that I'm not stuck. I'm not a tree. And you know what? I, I'm a gardener. Like you can always dig something up and move it. Like as long as you're intentional and thoughtful about how you dig it up and making sure you get all the roots and doing it, you know, yeah, you can move. And now, before we wrap up, we do ask every guest two questions. What is the worst piece of advice they've ever gotten? And what is the best piece of advice that you've ever gotten? Yeah, so this is this was hard because I don't tend to remember things I don't like. You know, like if somebody tells me something or says something, I'm kind of like, mm, nope, I can file that away and things that I never want to bring up ever again. But I will say, in thinking about this question, I remember distinctly driving over the Bay Bridge into San Francisco with my dad. And I was about 23. And I had been working as a model 
in San Francisco for, a, you know, two or three years. And I had built up like a bunch of gigs and I was able to kind of pay for my rent and go to school and blah, blah, blah. And I had built up a network and was doing pretty well. And I remember telling him, hey, I don't think this is what I want to do. And I'm really confused. And I'm just going to take about a year and go travel. And I'm going to put all my stuff in a storage unit and I'm going to get rid of, you know, like I'm going to get rid of my place and I have like a little bit of a plan, but I really just like need to be with myself for a while because I don't know what I want to do next. And I remember him saying to me, well, you know, you work so hard to get to this place in your modeling career. Why would you leave it now when it seemed like I was kind of at the pinnacle of breaking into something? For a moment, I was like, oh, maybe he's right. Maybe I've been working on this thing and because I've put in all of this sweat equity and all of this time that I should stick with it, even though I know it's not right for me, but I'm really stubborn. <laughs> so I didn't. And I decided to, to go travel for a year. And I actually, that's how I ended up coming. I traveled the world and came back to San Francisco and finished my bachelor's. And that's when I found drama therapy. So it all worked out. But yeah, I, I push back, like you could spend 20 years doing one thing and then one day decide, I don't want to do this anymore. And that's okay. And it's not a waste. <laughs> not a waste. All of that time. Totally. Not at all. Best piece of advice. I don't know who told me this, but I try to tell everybody who is younger than me. You know, I, I supervise young clinicians and mentor people. And I always tell them, there's no rush. You've got so much time. You have so much time. And I think that's true, even if you die tomorrow. I know everybody's like, live every day like it's your last, you know? And, and I'm like, no, you don't have to rush things. You don't have to be like, let go of all the expectations of, of, you know, having a house and a kid and a whatever at the age 30 or whatever those expectations that have been put on you, let them go. You have so much time, you have your whole life. And that I try to remind myself over and over again, especially when I'm working on a new project. I'm like, it should be done by now. I'm like, no, no, no. Think like, just let it be like, you've got time. Mm. That was so good. Thank you for, for being here and for sharing with all those who are, who are listening and We'll have to do a whole other episode on just you basically giving us a lecture on everything that we, we need to know. Thank you for having me. This is great. Thank you for listening to The Cost of the Status Quo and learning the wisdom, stories, and ideas that will have you feeling inspired and ready to take on the world. If you've enjoyed this, please remember to share, rate, and review. It means the world to me and the team putting it all together. If you're looking for more information, you can find us at costofthestatusquo.com or on Instagram at costofthestatusquo. If you've got any questions or curiosity about me, you can find me at lindsaylearner.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-L-E-R-N-E-R.com or on Instagram at lindsaylearner. Thanks again for listening. Hope you have an awesome day.